Something that you might not know about me is that I never intended to be in the church business. My undergraduate goals had me on track to become a certified family life educator. I wanted to work in the nonprofit sector, helping families receive the resources they need to thrive. So it's not a shock that my coursework had me spending a lot of time in the psychology department. One of my favorite professors was Dr. Stephen Bell, a Jewish man in his 70s who really knew his stuff when it came to lifespan development. He is an extremely kind man. You could always make an appointment with him during office hours just to have tea and chat. But as a professor, he was very quirky. With his background being in psychology, I think that he was constantly conducting experiments. I would often pass him in the halls and I would greet him, hey, Dr. Bell, how are you? And usually the response was something along the lines of, stop asking me personal questions or it's none of your business. <laughs> Comebacks that were said good-naturedly. By my senior year, I had taken enough classes with him to have established a friendly rapport. So one day, I passed him in the hall. I asked him, as one does, how are you, Dr. Bell? To which he responded, do you really care? I paused for a moment, contemplating my honest answer to that question as he kept on walking. This interaction has stayed with me. I think about it a lot, especially when someone asks me how I'm doing. It's helped me become more intentional with my own asking, seeking to be truly curious about others, fighting the complacency of habit. How often do we do this? We ask someone how they are and we expect it to be a pleasant enough interaction to where we feel cordial and both parties can go along with their day. How often do we, on the receiving end, choose to answer, I'm fine, either because it's expected or we're short on time or perhaps we just aren't sure if the space is safe enough to say, well, actually, I'm glad you asked. My life is in shambles and I could really use a friend right now. When was the last time you asked someone, not out of habit, but out of true intention, how are you? When was the last time that someone asked you and you felt safe enough to be honest in your response? How many of us have looked at our own pain and wondered in the midst of it, where is God? This might be one of the most honest questions of the human heart. One of my favorite authors, Barbara Brown Taylor, says, pain makes theologians of us all. Our scripture today comes from Exodus. We're actually going back to before Moses' direct conversation with God, before the encounter with the burning bush. Right after Moses kills the Egyptian, he sees who's beating a Hebrew. So Moses has run away from Egypt, landed in Midian, gotten married, had a son, and that brings us to the end of chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. I'll be reading from the CEB, but I'll also reference the NRSV. So I invite you to listen now for the word of the Lord. 
A long time passed, and the Egyptian king died. The Israelites were still groaning because of their hard work. They cried out, and their cry to be rescued from the hard work rose up to God. God heard their cry of grief, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God looked at the Israelites, and God understood. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. One of my all-time favorite TV shows is Parenthood. It aired on NBC for six seasons from 2010 to 2015. And it follows the extremely close-knit Braverman family as they navigate interpersonal conflicts and life challenges that many of us might find relatable. Zeke Braverman, the patriarch of the family, is a lovable grouch known for his short fuse and quick temper. He finds himself in couples therapy, attempting to save his marriage to his wife Camille, and he quickly learns the value of a tactic that's repeated throughout all six seasons. A pause, a breath. I hear you, and I see you. Haven't we all at some point felt like no one understands what we're feeling or what we're going through? Haven't we all felt the desperation of wanting someone to say, I hear you, and I see you, and I'm here with you? We're looking at just three verses, but there's a lot of meaning packed inside them. These verses signal an extremely important turning point for Israel, not only in their political identity, but in their theological identity, in their understanding of their relationship to God. Until this point in the book of Exodus, God's activity has seemed hidden. Think about what's happened so far. The Israelites have been enslaved in Egypt when a new king rose to power who didn't know Joseph. The Israelites have experienced nothing but oppression in Egypt through labor and maltreatment, and of course, the killing of their male babies. It's cause enough for collective grief, for a cry of desperation, for a longing to be seen, heard, understood, rescued. So these vote. These verses that we're focusing on this morning are actually a moment of transition into the liberation narrative. If we look closely, we see that these verses have two parts. There is the voicing of Israel, and there's the response of God. It's a conversation. For so long, Israel has been silent, and not by choice. Silence is often imposed by oppressors upon those whom they oppress. It allows such oppressors to define the terms of reality for those under their reign. So it's at the moment when the king dies that Israel finds its voice. It's a voice of rage and resentment, and understandably so. It is this crying out from Israel that creates a turning point 
upon which the entire exodus takes place. Israel's cry breaks the reality imposed on them by the empire. And it speaks to the core of humanity that a body can only absorb so much until it reaches its breaking point at which it will resist and rebel. The outcrying of the Israelites' desperation reflects the moment where they have reached the threshold to say that their circumstance is not right, it's not acceptable, and it's not sustainable. I find it particularly interesting that they don't necessarily cry out to God. The text says, the Israelites were still groaning because of their hard work. They cried out and their cry to be rescued from the hard work rose up to God. I think this is relatable because when a spirit breaks, won't it accept help from wherever it comes? When you feel unseen and like you're screaming into the abyss, don't you hope that you hear any voice that isn't your own? And yet it is God who hears them. God, not directly addressed, heard their cry of grief. Perhaps this God is especially attentive to cries of oppression. And the most beautiful part is that God didn't just hear, God remembered, and God saw, and God understood. And then ultimately, God was moved to action. It is voiced grief that moves God to act in saving ways. I want to draw our attention to each of God's actions because I think that they tell us a lot about who God is not only in relation to the people of Israel, but to us, who are also God's chosen people. So the first action, God hears their cries of grief. The voice of pain moves God to compassion and causes God to remember, specifically remembering the covenant made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm going to take a liberty here and wager that God hadn't actually forgotten about this promise, but that this action of remembering is less of a recall and more of a claiming, yes, you are my people. It's an identification that, indeed, this is the God who has promised to be faithful to the Hebrew people. It is a moment of connection between these old covenant oaths with the present circumstance of Israel's bondage. God has heard, God remembers, and then God looks at the Israelites. God sees them. The NRSV uses the language that God took notice of them. And the original Hebrew doesn't actually read this way. A more accurate translation would be, God knew. And it doesn't offer us an object. It leaves the reader to imagine what exactly God knew. 
there's something beautiful in that mystery. And while the text was written about a specific people in a specific time and place and social context, perhaps that space of mystery allows room for us to use our theological imaginations about what God knew and about what God knows, even in our own lives. God knew, and therefore, God was moved to act. We're familiar with what happens next in the story. God uses Moses to rescue the people from Pharaoh's captivity. And I don't think it's a coincidence that one of the most beautiful moments of the Exodus story, the Passover meal, is the very moment that has set the stage for the grace we will experience together shortly in celebrating Holy Communion. It's a reminder of God's saving acts. It's a reminder that God's grace that always has been is the same grace present with us today. Israel's story is our story. We know what it is to cry out in desperation. We know it on a communal level. We know what it is to grieve loss and violence and injustice. We have experienced collective trauma in forms of unexpected and unjust deaths, of widespread health crises, of crimes that hit too close to home. Our world is broken and we are not fine. I suspect that we also know it on a personal level. We know what it is to fear for the safety of ourselves and our families, to receive a life-changing diagnosis, to have conflict with a friend or family. Our hearts are broken, and we are not fine. But hear the good news. God does not leave us there. Maybe, maybe we've been silent long enough. Maybe we've believed the lie that no one sees or understands, or worse, that they see, but they don't care. God hears our cries. God sees us and God knows and God is moved to compassion. Perhaps you're familiar with My Cup of Tea. Maybe you've seen their products for sale in various stores around Memphis. But in 2019, a small group of youth and I who were participating in Collide Mission Immersion Experience had the privilege of visiting the house where the teas are packaged. We were treated like honored guests given a tour of the house, and learned some of the backstory that fuels their mission. The house is located in the Orange Mound community, and it welcomes women who are from that community, who may have limited knowledge or marginal access to home economics and parenting models and employment. My Cup of Tea seeks to empower women with the tools that they need to thrive, like financial workshops, and adult education assistance, Bible studies, 
life skills, as well as opportunities for employment in a field of their interest. The projects and the enterprises that they have available have grown, but it all started through the packaging and distributing of their many flavors and blends of tea. I tell you about this special place because when you visit the home, in almost every room there is a chandelier made of a collection of beautiful china teacups. But they aren't perfect teacups. Each one is cracked or chipped or stained. And that's intentional. It's a reminder that even with chips and cracks, they are beautiful and valued. It's a reminder that each one of us has a story. And each one of us has the capacity to be a cup bearer for another, holding sacred space for that person's story. What if church were more like this? A place where we felt safe to voice our desperation and our deep heartache. A place where we felt seen and heard and understood. A place where we knew there would be someone willing to act as a cup bearer for us. We'd be a church that looked more like the character of God. May this be a challenge for each of us today. Friends, God is faithful. To cry out in our pain and our desperation is not only to make our hurt known, but it is to voice our insistent hope. Our hope in the God who hears, remembers, sees, knows, acts. God has heard our cries. God remembers that we are God's own. God sees us in our suffering. God knows how our hearts break. God has been faithful to act. And what better way to experience God's action of care for us than through gathering at the table specially prepared for us. God sees and knows all that we hold inside us, our deepest hurts, our darkest thoughts. And still, God says, come sit with me at my table. There's a place just for you. In the name of the one who sees us and knows. Amen.